0: All right, we're going to continue in our series in the book of Exodus. So if you have your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 5. We're looking at chapter 5 all the way to the, to the end of chapter 6. Um, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and keep your hand raised really high. And then one of the ushers will walk down the aisle and get you a copy of God's word. If you don't own a Bible, please keep the one that we are handing out to you. It is free, um, much cheaper than it is on Amazon. And so you can hold on to that um, and follow along. Okay, just quick quick recap. Exodus. Is the second book of the Bible as you turn there? And what we see at the very end of the first book, Genesis, is that the people that God is going to use to bless the world are now find themselves in Egypt. At the beginning of Exodus, what we see is they've grown exponentially. There's uh, a lot of them. The king of Pharaoh himself does not like them there. However, the way that he treats them is he begins to enslave them. And so they're, in, they're enslaved. Another ways that he does it to try to get rid of them and their numbers is the Pharaoh says to the midwives to kill the babies. And then the next one is to take the firstborn son and put him down the Nile. It's there that we meet one of the main characters, Um, in the story of Exodus, and his name is Moses. Moses is sent down the Nile, and then Pharaoh's daughter is there taking a bath in the Nile, sees Moses, adopts Moses, raises Moses in the palace. While being in the palace, raised as an Egyptian, but yet he himself, as an Israelite, sees the plight of his people and sees the issues and the oppressions that are happening in their life, he tries to step in does so without an understanding and direction of God. It doesn't go well. You go, well, how do you know it didn't go well? Well, he killed a guy. That wasn't God's plan. And so he left, went to the wilderness, was there for years. While there, he meets uh, uh, a man named Jethro who becomes his father-in-law. So he's married to daughter. He has a kid. He's kind of living his life out in the burbs. And then God speaks to him. And he speaks to him through a burning bush. And then Moses hears from God and God says, you are going to be used to go back and to free my people out of the hands of Pharaoh. And so that's where we, we concluded last week is, where, we're, is where, um, where we were. Now, let me give you this week and the next week. So for the next several weeks, we begin to see how God begins to reveal himself. So a couple things I want to make clear. The book of Exodus is not the main character, is not Moses. The book of Exodus, as in all the books in the Bible, the main character is God. I know it's like, well, you're supposed to say that you're a pastor. That's true. But also, it is God. And what you begin to see is what God is beginning to do in the unfolding of his grand narrative in all of scripture is he's beginning to, re- beginning to reveal what he's like. Not just his name, not just what he's up to, but what he's like. And the way that that happens is this conflict between Pharaoh and God. Now understand the, co- co- the context of Egypt at this moment is Egypt has multiple gods in which they worship, but the main god is Pharaoh. And so what you have here over the next several weeks is a battle of the gods. It is Yahweh, the God of all creation, particularly the God of the Israelites, against Pharaoh and how they go back and forth. Next week, theologically, we'll deal with some things of what does it look like when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Or what is, why is it that God is a God who judges? And why that's a good thing for the sake of the world? And so we'll get into the plagues and all the things that if you're familiar with Exodus, that you're, you're familiar with. Today is the unfolding of a narrative of, is God still good and is he still for his people? Right as Moses and Aaron, his brother, go to try to free God's people, and what here's what I want us to get um, as we walk through this. I'm going to walk through this whole two chapters, and then there's some implications we have at the end of the ch- at the end of the chapter. But basically, to get this for us is, as a, those of us in this room who would who would say we're Christians, is there is some weird deal, and I don't think it's just unique to America, but it is here, is that somehow when we believe in God, or that we believe in God and His Son Jesus that only good things and never bad things will happen. Guys, That's a lie. Like it's just not true. It's never been true. Right? Like we look at the men and women in the Bible and the people who we look as quote-unquote the heroes of the faith, that's not true in their life either. Right? It's not true in anybody's life. But believing in God doesn't remove you from the presence of pain and danger and loss and shame and guilt. Hurt, all of those things. I know you're going like, is this going to be an encouraging message? <laughs> no. And so we, 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 we just have to, we, we have to understand that because somehow we're believing these false narratives that, that there's, another, there's another understanding of the gospel. When no, Jesus says this. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior says, in this world you will have tribulation. He was not joking. That was not satire. He says, but take hope, take courage, I've overcome the world. Meaning we have him question is, is he enough? Is he enough? All right, so that's what we're going to look at this, this, uh, this morning and, uh, and, our, and our time and so forth and Exodus. So I'm trying to think of a way to start the, this, and I was thinking about this. So you guys know this. Some of you guys know this because you guys go to church here. A few weeks ago, um, I had surgery, and, I, and the surgery was supposed to fix the way that I breathe. Now, it did fix the way that I breathe. It did not cure my snoring, which my wife loves, by the way. Uh, so when I went in, I, I first asked the guy, how painful is this going to be? And he says, oh, there'll be some discomfort. There'll be some discomfort. There'll be some discomfort. Okay, I've never been more miserable in my life. I'm being dead serious. My wife will tell you, like, I've never seen you like this. It looked like I got in a fight with Mike Tyson, right? Like legitimately, my face was all swollen. My life was miserable. I was like, Lord, take me now, right? Now, here's the thing, though. Doctors do that all the time. And they let us know, like, it's going to be painful. You take a kid in for a shot if you do that, and not to say you have to, the, the doctor... The doctor, what I, I have to say that this is—I'm not, not a doctor, guys. I am a pastor, by the way. Um, no credentials in that area. The doctor will say, "This is going to hurt a little bit." What happens is he gives the kid or the adult the shot, and they go, "Oh man, that hurts." You tell the kids, "Hey, the swimming pool's really cold." They jump in. What do they say? "Gosh, this is really cold." You tell people in premarital counseling, "Hey, there's some things about marriage that are amazing, and there's some things about marriage that are difficult." And they get into, it, they go, "Wait, this is difficult, right? We told you that, right?" There is this sense of going, "What?" Or we go, all right, well, at least you told us that. There's a thought even some way that our desired outcome, if we want it to be good, that there's, there's not going to be pain in it. Meaning, I wanted to breathe, but I would have rather for the doctor to say, here's how we're going to do this. Close your eyes, breathe. Oh, that was amazing. It doesn't work like that. Just because we want a desired outcome or result and it's a good desire doesn't mean that it's not dangerous and or difficult. The people of God right now in this context of this story in Israel, or excuse me, in Egypt, the Israelites, they wanted to be delivered. And you go, why do they want to be delivered? Because they were slaves, right? Never in the history of our world has it been a good thing to be a slave. They're sla- they've been slaves for years. The generation that's here now, they don't know anything different other than being slaves. And what we begin to hear is that at the end of chapter 2 is that God heard their, their groans. He heard their, their pain. He hears their cries. And it says not only does he hear, he's going to respond to promises that he had given their forefathers. Particularly Abraham and Jacob and Isaac. He says, I'm going to move on their behalf. And so there's this sense of going, they're going to be delivered. But there's a thought as we'll see here is that somehow it would happen overnight and it would be fine. But actually it gets worse before it gets any better. And I feel like we need to understand when it comes to the gospel, that's true in a lot of ways. Like in our world, we say there's life and then there's death, but in the kingdom, there's actually death and then there's life. Usually there's loss before there's gain. That's just the way that it works in the kingdom of God. And so we're going to look at this here um, and walk through this narrative and have the implications for us. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, this is after Moses and Aaron had been called by God to now go back and talk to Pharaoh. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, The God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I shall obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So here's the context here, Moses and Aaron, they they leave Mount Sinai, they walk back into Egypt, and they go talk to Pharaoh. The thing about Exodus is, the writer doesn't give us a whole lot of details, so we don't know how he even got this meeting. Right? like I can't show up to the White House to meet with the president and go, hey, I need to meet with President Trump. Can you let him know I'm here? I'll just sit here until you get him. Right? It's not going to happen. Like It's not going to happen at all. How do they just march right up and meet Pharaoh? I have no idea. But somehow they're there. Right? And they go to Pharaoh and they say, hey, Pharaoh, we are, we are representing God and he says to let his people go. Now, you've got to understand the thrust of this. He's not saying, hey, Pharaoh, can you, um, I don't know, when you get around to it, can you let my people go? Right? No, 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 there is like almost a threat here, like let my people go or there will be problems. So think of God saying, let my people go or we're going to have some problems. But he says it in Hebrew usually. And you have, (laughs) Pharaoh says, he looks at Moses and he looks at Aaron and he goes, I don't know your God. Now here's the thing, when he says I don't know your God, he's not saying I have no idea who your God is. And that day most people knew who each other's gods were. What he's saying is it's far less about awareness and far more about disrespect. Pharaoh is saying, I'm ready for a fight. And God's saying, oh, you don't want those problems. So there, there, there is a battle of the gods that is happening here It will happen for the next few chapters. So Pharaoh goes, okay, I'm not gonna, I don't even know who your God is. Verse 3, and then he said, the God of the Hebrews just met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he, fall upon, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens? The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters and the people of their, and their foremen, So no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go gather the straw for themselves, but the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Another word for that is he thinks they're lazy. Therefore they cry, let us go offer sacrifice to our God. Let the heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So here's what Pharaoh says. Okay. You guys are telling me, meaning you guys, uh, Moses and Aaron, to let the people go so they may have a celebration out in the wilderness, basically leave. He goes, no. In fact, here's what I'm going to do. I was providing straw before so they can make bricks as a part of their slavery. Now I'm going to take the straw away and then I'm going to make them make just as many bricks. And so it says that he makes it even heavier or even harder on them, which we'll talk about this more next week, but that same language of making it heavier is the same language we use that God uses for when he heartens Pharaoh's heart. And the reason I mention that now is there's always a thought of like Pharaoh was like going to be good, but then God made him bad. No, Pharaoh was evil. And God checked him. And what we're going to see later is, um, next week is, it's almost as if God is saying, you are going to make life hard for my people. I'm going to make life hard for you. Right? There is a battle of the gods. Right? There's a sense here where God is saying, the way that I'm going to show my people who I am is I'm going to reveal myself not just in name, but in character. So back to the story. Verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen, people, went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. The people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt and to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying... Complete your work, your daily tasks each day. And when there was straw, as of when there was straw, and the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your tasks of making bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? And then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, and yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must deliver the same number of bricks. And the foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily tasks each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them, and as they came out from, from Pharaoh, and they said to them, the Lord, look on you and judge, because you have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword to their hand to kill us. And then Moses turned to the Lord and said, "O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and have not delivered your people at all. Right? Moses and Aaron go from meeting with God at Sinai, and they're excited. There's this sense of belief. God can do anything. He's almighty. He's amazing. They walk in the Pharaoh with with confidence to be able to speak to Pharaoh on behalf of God. In their mind, I believe that they think God's going to move right away. And then there's opposition, which is crazy. You know why? Why? God told them there was going to be opposition. If you go back and you read 3, 4, chapter 3 and 4, God says to him, hey, I want you to go to let my people go. And just so you know, Pharaoh's not going to let them go. It's going to be hard. Moses and Aaron must have, like, missed that part. And then now they come in and they go, here, you got to let God's people go. Pharaoh now makes work even harder for them. Their own foremen are going, we can't do this. They're getting beaten. So they're upset. And then can you imagine being the slaves at this moment? Life's already hard. It's extremely difficult. And then you hear God's going to free you, so you get excited. And then you realize, wait a minute, because they spoke on behalf of God, now work is impossible for us. We're not able to do what Pharaoh wants us to do, and we're getting beaten for it. You get done getting the beaten. You walk out, and then you see Moses and you see Aaron. By the way, who aren't doing anything, right? And they're the ones representing. They see Moses, and they see Aaron, and they said, man, may God judge you. Because if you guys... Man, it got worse because you guys are here. And it says, you know what, you've made us a stink to Pharaoh. Side note, um, they were already a stink to Pharaoh. They were slaves. It wasn't like Pharaoh was like, yo, I used to like you, but now I don't like you. Pharaoh's never liked them. He's never liked them. But in this particular case, they're going, no. In fact, let's just go back to the way it was. Now, you're going to hear that over and over again throughout Exodus. Now, we say this to go, how is it that they both, the people who first hear that God's going to redeem them, The people who God's using to redeem them, Moses and Aaron. How do they go from saying, "Yes, Amen, God, we're with you," to all of a sudden going, "God, what are you doing?" Like even Moses is like, "God, why did you, why did you even send me?" Like what? What is? You're making it hard for them. Like it's now, (laughs) it's now God's fault, (laughs) in their mind, and um, we're not all completely unlike that. We we have this. We have this belief that, like, God owes us something. And I don't know if it's because we haven't read the Bible. Um, And I don't mean that in some, like, condescending way. I mean, like, legitimately we have a belief that when things go wrong, it's, it's God's fault. He owed us something good as if he promised that he, like, he owes us anything. He doesn't. Like, we treat God some ways, like we, we treat our parents sometimes. Like, we can get mad at our parents for certain things. Like, oh, I thought you were going to do this for me. And, and we, with God, it's like, I can't believe you allowed this, this, and this, and this to happen. If God allowed his own son to be murdered and crucified, how could he not allow anything for us and who we were saved by grace? By not anything we've done. Like, it, God is the one who's initiating this relationship. God is the one who's saying, I will come save you. God is the one who's saying, I will redeem you. God is the one who's showing up. And guess who continues to show up? God. He has every right to do what we do right now. Oh, y'all don't want me? I'm out anyway. Right? He doesn't. He could say, what, the people don't want me? Well, I don't want the people. But he tethers himself to the people. It's the reason why he says, I made a covenant with Abraham. I made a covenant with Jacob. I made a covenant with Isaac. Meaning, I made it in such a way that it would never be up to them, but it would always be up to me. Meaning, it is God's faithfulness towards us even when we're faithless. But when that happens, it doesn't mean that life won't get harder. There's a point of saying you want deliverance; deliverance will come, and God is doing. But it's going to come in His time, right? Hear me, hear me on this, guys. The Bible teaches whether it's hard to believe in a concept. I get it. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign. Okay, He is in control. It may not be the way that we would control it, but let me just tell you this: You're not God, and I'm not God. And God, being God, is actually freeing to us. It's not safe. But it's freeing. I think one of the best ways in which understanding this concept of God is being communicated is C.S. Lewis, who, by the way, explains a lot of things really well. And the Chronicles of Narnia. There's this, 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 this picture where Lucy is, is talking about meeting Aslan, who, by the way, is a lion. And Lucy's like, oh, I don't know. I'm rather scared of meeting a lion. I just want to know, is he safe? And the beavers, who are beavers, go, um, no, like, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. Guys, God is not safe in the way that we think of safety, and the way we think of security. Not in this life, but he's always good. And he promises to be present with us, right? It's like, like the doctor saying, this is gonna hurt. You wanna follow God, we wanna follow God. In this life, it's gonna hurt. But as he said last week, I am who I am, or another way to say, I will be who I will be. It's gonna hurt, but he will be who he will be in the midst of our circumstances. Not because of us, but even in spite of our actions. Amen? So God begins to speak now. He can completely turn his head, but he doesn't. Chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with the strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Okay, if you're a highlighter, now is the time in which you highlight. Um, If you have a Bible that we gave to you, you can highlight it. If you have a friend's Bible that you borrowed, highlight it and said, I did you a favor. <laughs> Verse 2, it says, God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord. He reveals his name. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as Almighty God, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Okay, let me just explain this because it can, can be confusing. He appeared to them, but he didn't make him known. Then how did he talk to them? Was he like in secret? Here's what's happening here. What he's talking about is, is the unfolding and the revelation of who he is. Let me just tell you this, the Bible is not a, um, a book of information. It's not a Bible, it's not a book of, of collected stories. The Bible in itself is a record of the revealing of who God is and what he's like. This is not a self-help book. This is not gonna make, make you um, more uh, dateable. This is not gonna make you better at work. This is not, none of these things. It's not gonna make you the best neighbor, all the, No, no, it reveals who God is and what he's up to and how we can begin to know him and be relational. If, if we go to this for anything else, it's, it's, it's gonna fail us every single time. Okay? What he's saying is, when I revealed myself to your forefathers, I didn't reveal to them what I'm about to reveal to you. Meaning they knew I was a God, was a covenant, had covenant to love. They had not seen me redeem yet. You are going to witness something where you begin to see the mighty act of God. Like, God had showed up for Abraham and brought him a child, and even then he had showed up and spared that child. He had showed up in certain ways, but the way in which he delivers, he's saying, I'm about to do for you something greater than I even did for your forefathers. Just so you know, he did the same thing for us. Everything that we read in Exodus, as amazing as it is, it pales in comparison to the very thing in which it was pointing to, and that is the deliverance of sin, Satan, and death in which we have in Christ Jesus. But the Bible is this unfolding narrative of God saying, I am for you, even when you're against me, that you may have faith and rest with him. So he says this now to them. Um, he continues, he says, Verse 4: I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, and the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. He keeps saying, I am Yahweh, I am God. Why does he keep saying that? Because they don't know who he is, or they've forgotten who he is. In the same way that we need to know who God is. Because maybe cognitively, maybe sometimes conceptually, we know who God is. But when we begin to function as if we are God or we are better than God, we need to be reminded that he is God, and he is our God, and he's the Lord of all creation. And he's in control, not us. And so he reminds them this. He says a few things here. Who he is, he is the God of creation. He is Yahweh, I am the Lord over and over again. He says to them that I am the God of your forefathers. I remembered what I said to them, and I'm going to come through on that promise. That promise to deliver and to bring you into the land. And the third thing that he says here is, and I hear hear your groanings. groanings. I hear what's happening. I know that you're enslaved and that he's going to be able to move. Verse 9, and Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses, because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. And so the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh the king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am an uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, what you have in verse 14 all the way to the end of the chapter is a long genealogy, which we're not going to read through. Um, one, I can't pronounce half of those names. Um, but the question is, because verse seven or chapter 7, it picks back up with the narrative. Why is there a break in genealogy? Here's why. God is using Moses, and he's also speaking through Aaron. And what he's doing in the genealogy is he's already built the story of Moses that we don't really know much about Aaron. And in the genealogy, they highlight the Levites. And the Levite is one of the particular tribes that particularly all of the priests will come from. So as Aaron will speak on behalf of God, now all of the priests in the tribe, as the tribe enters into the promised land, they will speak on behalf of God. And so that is where that genealogy comes. When you get to chapter 7 is when the judgment begins to happen. And that's what we're going to pick up next week. But there are some implications that we have from here for us to be able to understand. One of the things I wanna point out when it comes to Exodus is, and why I think sometimes it's even difficult for us to embrace it. Um, we have a lot to lose, guys, many of us. We have marriages, we have families, we have homes, we have education, we have a lot to lose. And, and therefore, I feel like sometimes we teeter the line between what it means to be faithful to God and to be faithful to this world. And it is ironic that most of the people, most of the the people who have really taken Exodus to heart that have been the most encouragement of God have been those whose backs are against the wall. Those whose backs are against the ground, all they can do is look up. Whether it be the Jewish men and women during the Holocaust, um, whether it be the African-American slaves in our country, Exodus was their cry. Or even if you look at Hebrew literature and at what is it that sustained the exiles while they were in Babylon. What most writers believe is what sustained them while they were in Babylon is that they begin to sing what they call dangerous songs. Songs of Yahweh. And the songs in which they sing, they sang of a time in which they had heard the Exodus story and how the people of God had been enslaved and oppressed and that God had heard their cries and how God swooped in and that God through his mighty hand that he took down Pharaoh and he delivered his people. And so while they found themselves in Babylon, they would sing and unite these songs and teach their kids to say as such, if God can do it then, why could he not do it again? And I, I, the reason why I don't think we get it or we over-spiritualize the book of Exodus is because many of us, we, we look at suffering as outside of God's plan as actually a part of his plan. Like, and, and which is crazy because the God in whom we believe in suffered on a cross, not that we won't suffer ever, but that we actually be redeemed and restored one day. He doesn't promise that in this life. And so, so for us to be able to understand this, We got to put ourselves in the position of this, because I tell this, if people can get the gospel when their back's against the wall, those are the people we need to learn from. Because here's why. When we lose the things in which we so preciously just love, when we lose the things in which we proudly, in some ways and idolatrous ways cling on to, we still need to know that there's a God in whom we can have hope in. And sometimes it's not looking at the people to the right and left of us. It's actually looking at the people who are at the bottom because somehow they're able to worship a God, the God of the Bible in ways that we've never been able to worship him. That's why Exodus begins to speak to us in ways because we're learning from slaves. We're not learning from the elite. So what we have here is the implications. The first one, the three that I have here. I'll just put them up here and we'll, we'll walk through the implications. The first one here is the promise of God's presence does not detach us from the presence of pain. The fact that God says, I'm gonna be with you, doesn't mean that we're going to hurt even though he's with us. That we're not going to hurt when he's with us. Next one is, is that we can't ignore our circumstances or our God. The tendency is to look at the circumstances and get rid of God. Or to look at God and over-spiritualize the circumstances. We can't pick one or the other. The next one here is God is more for our redemption than we are. So let's start with that first one when it comes to God's presence. God says, I will be your God and they will be our people. The way he tells us now in Jesus now is he would never leave us nor forsake us. That we have the spirit of God With us, Now, the reason why I put this here is when we look at this, they're groaning, they're upset, they're mad at God because they heard that God was going to deliver them, but he's not delivering it on, on their time. And because he's not delivering or moving on their time, there is a sense of them being, well, he must not be good, he must not be God. And in our own lives, just because God's presence is with us, and he is, it does not detach us from the reality or the present of pain, right? Like just pain, like stuff that does not go our way. Hear me, because some of you guys are morally upright, you do the right thing all the time. You're just good people. That doesn't mean that you're gonna have good things that happen to you all the time because you've done all the right things. It doesn't mean your business, it doesn't mean your marriage, it doesn't mean your kids, all of these things will be great. Because God doesn't owe you any of those things. Does he bless you through that? Absolutely. Is he faithful in that? Absolutely. But he does not owe you any of those things. I'm trying to teach my oldest son, who is such a do-gooder, and he doesn't get why the things he like—he's doing everything right—and sometimes he doesn't get what he wants. The other one does some of the things right and somehow gets the, the like things that he wants. It's like this is the way we live. You chose to do what's right, but it's it may not be the result that you want. He doesn't get it. It's like listen—you got to read the Bible. The most, the perfect, the most perfect person. Whoever walked the face of this earth, his family denied him, his friends denied him, and he was murdered. And that's the one in whom we believe in. Are you greater than Jesus? That's what I want to say. (laughs) Like, there's there's a sense where there there, there is pain, and that doesn't mean that God isn't present with you in it. Or that the presence of God means that he's immediately getting rid of the pain. Now, here's what I'm going to tell you. I don't know why he doesn't snap his fingers. I wish there was a moment where God can snap his fingers and get rid of some of the stuff that we've gone through or we could have get around it and so forth. Or he could teach us a lesson that we needed to learn from it. And I don't, I don't know why. And the Bible doesn't give us a very clear answer of why he allows the suffering when he does. But it does let us know that he's God and that he's good. And the question for us is, as people of faith is, is he enough? Do we believe that he's enough? There is something, we've all been in experiences before where we've been scared, um, where we don't know what's gonna happen next and though the circumstance doesn't necessarily change, there are certain people that we just want to be with in that circumstance. Meaning just their presence alone gives us a way through the particular darkness. Does that make sense? So we, we and I don't, I share this as not a, like a sad story, or anything like that, just my experience. When we were growing up, there would be moments where we just, my mom just didn't have enough money to pay the bills, right? And so there would be like a, w- just like a week or so that we wouldn't have lights. And so me and my brother would get home, the, we were supposed to get home from school and stay in the house, and then we were fine because the, you know the sun was up, but then when it would get darker, we'd have to like, light the candles, but it was just me and my brother. And I would get really, really afraid, um, and like, man, when's mom gonna get home? When's she gonna get home? And you know, we couldn't get a hold of her because this is, this is before we had cell phones, and you're like, what, did you have a landline? I did, but we didn't have any electricity, remember? And so I could call her, and, and you know, so we would just know that she'd be home around 6.30 to 7.30, depending on how LA traffic was. <laughs> which is, right, <laughs> L.A. traffic. And so when she, when she would get home, like, we'd be afraid. As soon as she'd walk in the door, it'd be like, oh. We'd start laughing again. We would start eating. We would, you know, guess what? Guess what didn't change? The lights were still off. But it was something about just her presence being there that changed the whole mood. You know why? Because for us in that moment, she was enough. Did we want lights? Absolutely. And when the lights came back on, we were very excited, right? I don't know everybody's story. But I do know this, you are going through something or you will go through something or you're perpetually in something. The question is, is God's presence enough for you? Don't believe the lie that somehow he's dissing himself for you. That's why these things are happening and so forth. No, God is present with his people, even in those those moments where it feels like he's not. The question is, are we faithful to him? Because he's always faithful to us. It, it, and, and it's difficult for us because we don't want it to go that way. But when we read the Bible, we realize God's faith. We can see, we have an adva- advantage point to see God's going to deliver them. It's just a question on how and when He's going to deliver them. But he's going, to pr- he's going to be promised. Are we able to rest in the promises of God when our present circumstances don't seem to point to that direction? The, the next one is, segue into that, is when it comes to our, circ- our circumstances. We can't ignore our circumstances or our God. And here's what I mean by that. There's some of us, like the Israelites here, God says, I'm gonna be your God. I hear your, I hear your cries. You know, I was there for, I, I remember Isaac, I remember Jacob, I remember Abraham. You are gonna be my people, I'm gonna be your God. He goes, Moses, tell the people that. And he tells them like, I'm gonna deliver you. And it says that they're like, no, sorry. The slavery, it's too harsh. So we don't wanna listen to it. Um, they had more of a concern and more of an awareness of their circumstance than they did their deliverer. More of an understanding of their circumstance more than they did their God. And we, we see it. We understand that. And many of us find ourselves in that same situation or that same predicament, no matter what the circumstance may be for us. It could be the fact that it seems like every time we look up, someone around us is walking away on us, that somebody's turning their back on us, somebody's Dying on us, like, and it just feels like the circumstance is overwhelming to the point that either God, God may not be good, or He may not be big enough, and so we begin to turn our backs on God. Or the flip side, some of you guys, you're just overly spiritual, like, like overly spiritual, meaning like not healthy. Like, you just try to say your mind's so fixed on God that you don't understand the circumstance. And I know if you've ever been around people like that, those people are equally as annoying. Um, and I don't even say that to be funny, but like when you're going, man, you know, I'm really sad. Well, you don't need to be sad because God's good. And it's like, um, never mind, right? Seriously, I just, I don't, I don't know how to express it. And what I mean by that is going, yes, you, you can have God and then still be realistic about your circumstance. Hey, we don't have lights in our house, and this stinks. And you can still just be as faithful to God there. So you can't, on one hand, try to over-spiritualize things that you say because you want to have God that you don't understand, like, man, this is hard, right? And this is difficult. But on the flip side, you can't just look at your circumstances and then just ignore your God. None of those those ways really help you. Because the reason why we can live in the tension is because we have a God who's fully man and he's fully God. So Jesus himself fully gets the circumstances that we ourselves are in. That he goes through these things that he knows what it's like to have people die he knows what it's like to have people reject him he understands that and yet he's fully god and he's a redeemer so we're able to live in that tension as long as we continue to understand and have a belief in the presence of god in the middle of that It doesn't change anything it changes who we are in the circumstance even if the circumstance itself doesn't change and the, the last thing here is that god is more for our redemption than we are what we begin to see here is if you notice they turn their back on god and God immediately continues to pursue, because that's just what he does. Like he, we, we have an incredible God. He does not function the way that you and I do. He, he, he loves us when we do not love him. He is faithful to us when we are faithless to him. And that he continues to pursue us. Some of us have had the experience of really wronging somebody who we love. For whatever reason, we're we're in a bad mood or a bad season of life. That we've wronged the person we've loved. Only to come to our senses and go, oh my goodness. And to realize, man, that person has loved me even in the midst of this. Even in spite of this. God takes that to another level. I mean, they turn their back. God does not have to be in Egypt right now. He wants to be in Egypt. Because those are his people. And he's going out of his way to show them how much he desires to be with them. And we see that ultimately even in the person of Christ. God and Jesus does not have to leave the comforts of heaven to come here. He does it because he desires for us to be with him. Like he desires that. He didn't owe us redemption. He didn't owe us salvation. He does it because he loves us. He's more for our redemption than we are. And that's a good thing because if it was up to us, none of us would get in. It's too long and it's too hard. And yet somehow the blood of Jesus speaks a way better word than even our complaints. Because it speaks the truth, and the truth primarily comes back as a result of who God is, not who we are. That what we see is God says this, as he says in Timothy, that he's not, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And when it says he cannot deny himself, denying himself would be denying us because he's brought us into himself. Right? There is something rather beautiful about the gospel of Jesus when we can see it is not something in which we just get to make our lives better, but someone whom we get and whom we can see. There is nothing in this world that ultimately God has promised us that he will not give us in Christ Jesus, right? And it does come down to do we believe him and is God enough to us? We have something now, guys, that the Old Testament writers and the Old Testament people did not have. And that is the living presence of the Holy Spirit constantly living with us. Is God enough? Is the Father's love enough for us? Is Jesus' sacrifice, his death, and his resurrection enough for us? Is the outpouring of the Spirit of God upon us enough for us? Or do we need to have the healthiest of marriages in order for us to believe in God? Because he hasn't promised that, guys. He gives us everything we need to try to get to have it. He hasn't promised us the best kids, right? You want them. I want them. No one has them, right? He hasn't promised us that we're going to always have the best of friends. He hasn't promised us that our jobs and everything, and it's going to be great. He hasn't promised us that the way we live financially right now will always be. He hasn't promised us that the people we love won't get ill and die. He hasn't promised us any of these things. And yet, I feel like we get mad at him when we don't get him. The things that he's promised us is this, that if you believe in him, you shall not have perished but have eternal life. That in this world, you will have tribulation, but you also have him and he's overcome the world. He's promised us that all the things that he hasn't promised us that when we experience them that are bad and sad in our lives, that one day he's going to take his thumb and wipe every tear away from our eyes. Not in such a way to erase it, but somehow to be able to make sense of it. We don't fully get it now because now we see dimly. But then in Christ Jesus, we see face to face. The Israelites, they don't really get it yet. And yet, because God loves them. He's gonna redeem them. We, as a church, in Christ, even in our faith, we don't really get it. But one day in Christ, He will fully redeem and restore us. Amen? Why don't you guys go ahead and close your Bibles. And we're gonna pray. God, we thank you for the great grace in which you extend to us. God, we ask you that you prepare our hearts and our minds for all that you have for us and all of who you are and your character. I pray that over the next several weeks that we begin to see things that somehow are difficult to us, that we would see him as good. We would see that you are a God who judges, and there is judgment, that you are a God who is faithful, even when we're not. That you are a God who makes a covenantal promise with your people that you will never leave us nor forsake you, even when we find ourselves running from you. But God, that you would fill us with your spirit in fresh ways, that we would rejoice in Christ, come what may, and that, Father, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the loss, in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of all of these things, God, that your presence and your spirit would be enough. God, I confess how moments I would love for circumstances to change and then that would draw me to you. I pray, Lord, that you would just draw yourself to you even when the circumstances don't change. That we praise you if you do and praise you if you don't. Father, that we would be like the exiles who would say things, Lord, that if you save us, great. If you don't, you don't as long as we have you, God, that you are enough. That our lives in themselves, Lord, they belong to you, that we were bought at a high price, that we no longer belong to ourselves. God, I pray that we would be able to faithfully serve you, be able to worship you, and see you, and follow you for who you are. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen.